Jesus gave parables because he, instead of just suggesting something propositionally, he knew how human beings learn best. He, understand, he understood us that we learn really when we engage something in story form almost like no other way. It engages us in our imagination. And in fact, the parable, a story, invites us to enlarge it and to sit with it and to consider what might have happened. It gives us license to explore it. And so this story, the story of the parable of the prodigal, is just a, a wonderful piece for us to jump into. And you remember that it was really part of three little stories. There were, there were well, actually, there was two stories that Jesus told that led up to this third piece. And together, the three of them make one story of lost things. But there, Jesus talked about the lost sheep, and he talked about the lost coin. And then it comes to this one, the prodigal, the lost son. And it's, it's a magnificent story. You recall, if you've been here the last few weeks, that it was given as a response to a criticism that Jesus um, was undergoing. The scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of Jesus' day, were taking issue with his unorthodox and almost cavalier way of engaging people that normally a holy teacher would not do fact is that the group that opens up the chapter here, it says the pub, in Luke 15, this is not in your handout, but if you were to look at the chapter, we looked at it a few weeks back here, it opens up by saying that the publicans and the sinners drew near to hear him. That group, the outsiders in Jesus' day, the disenfranchised and written off, the publicans were the tax collectors who had sold their soul to Rome. They were the ones that basically were collecting money on behalf of a foreign empire, and they were highly despised. That's a theme throughout all the Gospels, is that the pub, they're like, if you really wanted to insult, insult someone, you know, identifying them in that way was a way to do it. It was like, this was the worst of the worst. And they were despised, uniformly despised. There was the other group, the sinners, they were, the, they, they were called that because of the more blatant lifestyle and that was clearly and obviously something that people would recognize as being outside of what was in alignment with the teachings of the scriptures. And as a result, they were ostracized. And here's the problem. They were written off. And Jesus comes along and he engages these people who traditionally were just pushed to the side as essentially people you stayed away from. And he engages them and he talks with them and he eats with them and he... He talks to them, and he listens, and he shares to them the good news. And he says some hard things, and it would be a misnomer to suggest that, well, he just said nice things, and he, he said some tough things, but they felt the love of God in his words, and they knew they were being included, and it compelled them to listen. And so this, this, was, this criticism, these stories, are a response to the criticism that is being given to Jesus because of his engaging of these people. So when we think about the prodigal son, we need to think about the context of what is actually happening when Jesus tells this story. Again, this is the third story. The first two were short. This one actually is deceptive in the sense that it starts small, but it has a lot more to it. And so we'll just read it together. We'll jump in. Verse 11, it says, Then he said there was a certain man who had two sons. Verse 12, And the younger of them said to his father, Father, 
give me the portion of goods that falls to me. And so he divided to them his livelihood. Now, this is where we left off last week. We talked about how unconventional it would have been for the younger son to go and ask for his inheritance in Jesus' day at a point in, in what it seemed to be of relative health and well-being at the father. In other words, usually the inheritance, customarily, traditionally, was not passed on until the father was either dead, dying, or incapable of managing the estate. In this case, Jesus pictures an unconventional, almost disrespectful request on the part of the younger son. And notice it says that he asked him for his, his money on the front end. And we're told that, notice the phrase here, so he, he says, give me the portion of goods that falls to me. I want mine now. And basically, I need to leave this place. I want to go. And we talked about, I want to experience things. I want to live life. I, I, I feel confined here. But I need your help. I need you to give me what's coming to me early on. Now, again, we look at them and go, oh, well, it, notice the it says that so he divided to them. So the, the request was, give me my portion. And it says that he divided to them. The other brother is brought in now to Jesus' story. And here's what we need to understand. This request, it was not like you just go and, oh, yeah, let me go get the, the money in the bank account and we'll split it up. This would have required an extensive amount of effort. There were investments, things that would have had to have been liquidated. Uh, to do this was not only kind of disrespectful, almost like saying, you know, I know you're not dead yet, but give me what's mine now so I can get out of here. But also it would have angered the older brother because it was almost like he would have said, you know what, you're, you're taking our, our assets that are supposed to grow and you're diminishing them prematurely. And you get the impression that he would have had the conversation of father, don't do this. And part of the anger that is going to show up at the backside of this story is associated with the fact that he was brought into this. He was brought into this. And so there was a division of the assets. Prodigal gets his money. He cashed it in. And he begins, notice in verse 13, it says, Not many days later that the younger son gathered all together, and he journeyed to a far country. Here's the phrase that we're really dwelling on, this far country, a distance away, and there he wasted his possessions with prodigal living. That is, he was reckless in the way in which he, he went about um, spending what he was given. You get the impression, if we were telling the story in our vernacular, that he just squandered and spent everything. He wasted it. He partied, and he paid for stuff. He paid for people. He had a lot of friends. When you, got a lot of, when you have money to spare and you're willing to spend it, it's an amazing kind of group that will associate and hang with you. But we're told that he was a foreigner in a far, in a far country. And when something happened that occurred here, that it was, it was kind of like a, a couple of different things happening at once to create that perfect storm scenario. Because we're told that as he's going through his money, he's going through it fast, and he's having a good time, and maybe part of him is saying, this is great, this is what I thought it was going to be, but he runs out of money. And when he runs out of money, he spends it all, got nothing to show for it. Spends it all, and then it says the economy, we would call it an day. it says a famine hit the land, we would say the economy took a bad turn. <laughs> and there were tons of people without jobs. That's what's implied here. And when you're the outsider, when you're a a foreigner and you're an outsider and now all of a sudden there's no place and you got no money and the friends that you thought you had maybe you used up all your good credit 
Who knows? It doesn't tell us. We're left to think about it. But the bottom line was he was desperate. Jesus creates a picture of a, of a young man who, a boy, a young man who's lost everything. He squandered it all. He was thoughtless, reckless. He was foolish. He spent, he misassumed people. He got worked. He's now at a point where he's desperate. The economy's turned on them. It's bad. There's no place to work. He can't find a job. Jesus says, you know what happened to him? You know what he had to do? And again, to his audience, they would have gone, what? Because what he says would have pulled forth a collective gasp. Because Jesus says something that would have been unthinkable for most people in his day. He says that he was forced to look for work and he got so desperate, so hungry, he had nowhere else to turn that he finally found a guy who was willing to hire him. And he said, look, I'm willing to hire you. I got, it's not much. I've got one thing you can do if you want to do it. I've got some pigs. I'm looking for somebody to feed them. And if you want, I'll give you a little bit to do it. And again, for, see, it, I don't know what comes to our mind. Maybe sort of, when you, we think of what is the worst thing someone can fall to. What, what would... What would getting to the bottom really look like? Because for them, in many of them, because you see, for, a, for the Jewish people in Jesus' day, especially, to work with swine, cursed is everyone who feeds swine. It was like, not only had you lost your self-respect, but you almost were given up your identity as a, as a part of the, the chosen people. I mean, you, don't, you didn't do that. It was like the... It was like selling yourself. It's almost like someone would have said, yeah, I don't care how bad it gets, you don't do that. But Jesus says, he got, he got desperate. I'll do it. And he takes the job. And everybody's going, oh, that's bad. And Jesus says, it gets worse. He started feeding the pigs in the mud and in the stench and he's feeding them, and he's looking at what he's feeding them, and he's going, they're eating better than I'm eating. As he throws them, notice it says here, he says he would gladly have filled his stomach, look at this, with the pods, the carob pods that the swine ate. And no one gave him anything. There was nobody, no one, nobody was showing him any mercy. It was, it was like there was no kindness, nothing. And that's the picture Jesus invites us to imagine. I mean, he paints it with broad strokes. He's creating a, a movement, you know, the way he, and he intentionally does it this way. And I was thinking, you know, Lord, how, how I mean, let me see this, 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 this young guy in, in my eye. Let me, let me try to imagine him. I see him sitting there by, by that mud. And I see him with the pigs. And what, thinking about he, how, who he was, and he's dirty now, and he's smelly, and he's soiled, and he's emaciated, and his clothes that were once really sharp, they're, they're rags. And he's, he's got dazed eyes, and he's ashamed. Look at me. Somewhere in there. Look at me. And I just oh, I see him. I see him with the a tear melting down his eye. What's become of me? Is this this is the, the this picture is of someone totally broken and messed up? Maybe as he's sitting there, 
thinking, what have I done? What's happened to me? That he, his mind goes back to the conversation he had with his father when his father, with pained eyes, looked at him and said, son, I think you're making a mistake. I think that you're underestimating. It's not everything it seems. The far, the far country is not everything it seems to be. You be careful out there. It looks beautiful. It has a certain seduction to it, but it'll kill you, man. It'll work you over. I don't think you're doing the wise thing. And you know what? The father's advice fell on deaf ears. It was like, it was more of a nuisance than a concern. It's like, I know what I'm doing. Just, you know what? Enough. No one's going to control me. I want to do this. And this idea, maybe he's sitting there now with the consequences of his insistence on doing what he wanted to do. And it's just, it's, you know, I was trying to say, well, how would I feel if it was mine? You know, I'd be trying to have that conversation. Saying, don't do that. You make a mistake. You underestimate. You, think, you overestimate yourself and you underestimate what you're about to have to deal with. And he's sitting there, the picture of a broken, broken man, a broken boy. He's just absolutely devastated. He's a mess. And as I was looking at this, I was thinking, wow, okay, here's the picture of the far country. I want us to, for a moment, just stay with me on this. I want us to think about the far country as kind of a, a metaphor, if you will, for understanding um, life that is lived away from Father's house. So when, we t when Jesus talks about the far country, he's talking about that place that we get to where we are away from the Father. So it's that place of lostness, that place of separation. Um, it's kind of like we, we are away from what we, we had with God. We've lost that. When I, when I was growing up, honestly, even still to this day, I remember early on in my life, it would be in Sunday school, and I would hear this parable being talked about, and as the years have gone by, and, and it was usually talked about in reference to somebody who was, was raised to know the Lord and kind of had, had an experience with God, but somewhere along the way, they got lost, and they got off track, and they ended up in some place that was honestly completely separated from the Christian life, and, and they were the prodigal in the far country, and I, I, I grew up really thinking of that's what a prodigal is. A prodigal is someone who, who used to know God, but it's gotten messed up. And, and yet, I, as I've gotten further along in this thing, I realize that people leave home for a lot of different reasons. Pro Jesus says in this one, prodigal leaves home. Why? Because he's got stars in his eyes. I mean, he, he's, he's somewhat naive. He doesn't get how it really works. He thinks that this is just going to be fantastic experience, and he ends up getting totally abused. He's a picture of someone abused, and he's got nothing. But I thought a lot of prodigals leave because, honestly, they saw hypocrisy. They saw inconsistency. They got bothered, turned off. They saw stuff happening that they said, this is not, this is, this is what Christianity is, and I don't want any part of it. You know, someone who should have been protecting them, someone should have been modeling, or maybe, I'll tell you what else I've seen a lot of. A lot of times people are raised in very sanitized environments where the rules are what's important, but the heart of it is not really being emphasized. And so it kind of comes, becomes a rule-based approach to serving God, and it creates a kind of antsiness and a tendency to just want to break out and rebel. And when that happens, a lot of times that leads to a kind of recklessness, and that recklessness can tend to lead to a, a point where there's an entanglement, 
and that entanglement gets to a point where it's like, I can't get out of this thing, and now it's who I am. And there's a certain hopelessness about ever recovering what I once was. I am this person now, and I can't go back. And I've seen that a number of times. I've seen people drift off. They go to college. They're, they're doing fine. They, they leave the play. They, somehow it's just a little bit over time. They're not connecting. They're not getting back involved in the community before long. They're, they're just, you know, it's kind of on the side. And, and next thing you know, is that they're living life completely away and, and from the Lord and from what they've known. And I'm saying is that, you know, at the core of who we are, when I look at this, I go, Lord, you know what? This is, I, I look at this and I say, Lord, our, our, the reason our church even exists, at least in a big way, is because we want to be a place where prodigals can come home. Come back home where you belong. But they did this, or this is what, you know what, I remind myself all the time of how for some people, it is such a big deal to walk through a church door again how much of an of a act of courage it is. For some of us, it, was, we, it, was, it wasn't much. But for others, I know, because I hear the stories, it is it, it, huge. And to actually take the risk to open up my heart again, but there, it's dangerous, it's scary, and yet at the same time, there's something about God calling us home. Come home come home. I was, I was looking at the, in the handout there, you know, we put the song in there that was called, um, we're not closing yet, but the song, <laughs> the song, Cheers of the Saints, when I first heard it, it made me cry. And it, it hit, hit me at a, at a chord because I thought, Lord, I think about the people who are praying for their lost sons and daughters and, and people they care deeply about who've drifted off course and gotten into a mess, Lord. And, and, and I was thinking, look, look at this. It says, there are many prodigal sons. I would add prodigal sons and daughters, right, it, on our city streets. Many people come to run away. They come to San Francisco and to run away from God. And on our city streets, they run searching for shelter. There are homes broken down. That is an epidemic. And people's hopes fall into the ground from failures. This is an emergency. There are tears from the saints for the lost and the unsaved. And we're crying for them. Come back home. Come back home. And all your children will stretch out their hands and pick up the crippled man. Father, we'll lead them home. See, it's about coming home. This parable is everything about coming home. Jesus shows us the picture, and I bet you he paused when prodigal, when he says this is where he is, in the pig pen. And no one knows what's going to happen. What's going to happen next? Now I'm going to say that, by the way, not every prodigal who leaves home ends up in the pig pen. Some actually do very well in the far country. A lot of prodigals, um, how you say, are quite successful in the far country. But what did Jesus say? What, what will it profit a person if they gain the whole world and lose their soul? You make a name, but you're not home. 
let me just quickly share with you a couple of my, my thoughts around this. Firstly, that their true life can never actually be found apart from the Heavenly Father. That we can, we can try to dress it up in whatever way, but all that is in this world, lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, pride of life, will pass away, but he or she that does the will of God, you will abide forever. I mean, this is a promise. I was thinking about our world. Our world, our culture makes promises it cannot keep. It cannot keep. In the end, it has no answer, really, to satisfy the deepest longings of a human being's heart. And that is why it was St. Augustine who said, our souls are restless till they find truly their rest in you. There's a restlessness in a human being. And that leads me to the second thought, which is really an opinion. You can wrestle with it, take it for what it's worth. It's a little bit unorthodox from my perspective, but here's, what I, what, here's my, my take on it. I think it's better to be prodigal in the pig pen than it is to be prodigal in the presidential suite. All right? Why? Because when we're on the bottom, we tend to see our need because everything is ripped off of us, man. There's nothing there. There's nothing left. I'm, I'm a raw. But when we're lost on top, when we're lost on top, that's a different ballgame, isn't it? Because our true condition, our, let's just say that our spiritual poverty can be masked by our temporal prosperity. And so we can insulate ourselves from having to look at our real need. I sit all the time. We can, it's like we create barriers before we have to really dig down deep. So I can get this, or I can buy that, or I can go here. And so there, that is why Jesus said, and he wasn't anti-wealth. He said this, though, it is hard for a rich man to come into the kingdom. Because he says there's that tendency to create a safety net that prevents them from recognizing their need. Now, again, he said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Why? He wasn't make, Jesus did not make a virtue out of poverty, but what he was saying was that when we see ourselves broken with nothing really, stripped aside of all the veneer and all the props that we say makes us something, when those things are gone, it's just raw, us and God. And when we're in that place, we get real. And that is why there are windows in people's lives that where there's more openness than other times. And a lot of times it could be at the, at the end of a relationship when something that really was important. It's just melting down. It's falling apart. There's an, I've noted, there's an openness in that place of brokenness. There's an openness to God. Oftentimes it wasn't there before. A lot of times we've got a career path. Everything's going our way. We've got money. We can get what we want. But all of a sudden, you know, that something changes. A political maneuver occurs or the industry shifts on us. And all of a sudden we find ourselves, we're all, we, what we thought was going to happen isn't happening. And we're stuck and we're, we're, we're broken. Our identity, what was our identity is lost. What do we do? In those places, people often find themselves, honestly, I'll tell you, it's sometimes better to be there because we say, God, I'm open. I'm open. I've seen it, I'm telling you, I've seen it a hundred times, thousands, maybe over the course of, of decades. People get to a point where they're open in a way that they weren't open before. I mean, it happened to some of us. Not everything that is a loss is a loss, and not everything that is a win is a win. 
things are not always as they seem. Let me throw something else out there that I believe that, that bottoming out is often the key to returning home. But thirdly, I think we are like prodigal every time. This is a bit of a shift here. But we are like prodigal every time we diminish the value of the Father's love and concern for us. And every time that we base, listen to me, our self-worth and our identity on things, titles, um, other people's opinions, we are moving into the far country. And we're not being where we're supposed to be. Grounded and planted in Father's house because Father's house is a safe place. It says you are loved, not because of what you've earned, what other people think of you, what temporal success we may have achieved. You are loved because you have turned your heart to me and I am receiving you fully as you are. Your identity as, as a son of the Father, as a daughter of the Father, and there you, you find yourself in that place. It's a safe place. It means other people and situations and events and achievements. At the end of the day, those things aren't who you are or who we are. It's not how, how big we get to manage something. It's not how, see, it's, that's not it. It's, am I, I am one loved by God. I am one loved by God so much that he gave everything for me so that I might be with him. That's the gospel in its simplest form. Home is where I belong, and home is where he is. There's a big quote, piece, an entry, the gray zone, in the, in the handout. Henry Nouwen, stay with me on this, because I know... Uh, Henry Nouwen died a few years back. He, part of the reason this is so profound to me is because... He, I was reading about him because he really loved the parable of the prodigal son. He, th he saw himself in that parable a lot. But this very reflective, honest, candid, probing writer who had the ability to get into his own heart and challenge things when he saw something that was there. And he was a very insecure person in many ways. But he wrote this, and it connected with me deeply around this point. He says, when I forget, stay, just focus a little bit on this, when I forget that voice of the first unconditional love, that's the love that God has for us, then these innocent suggestions can easily start dominating my life and pull me into that distant country. He's using it as a metaphor, right? It, uh, it's not very hard for me to know when this is happening. He's saying it's going to show up in my attitudes, in the way that I assess myself. Anger, resentment, jealousy, desire for revenge, lust, greed, antagonisms, rivalries. These are obvious signs that I have left home. I'm not in the place where Father wants me. I'm not home. And that happens quite easily when I pay careful attention to what goes on in my mind from moment to moment. I come to the disconcerting discovery that there are very few moments during my day when I am really free from these dark emotions, passions, and feelings. He says, constantly falling back into an old trap before I'm even fully aware of it. Notice, I find myself wondering why someone hurt me, why someone rejected me, or didn't pay attention to me. Without realizing it, I find myself brooding about someone else's opinion of me, someone else's success. Interesting. My own loneliness and the way that the world abuses me. Despite my conscious intentions, I often catch myself daydreaming about becoming rich, powerful, and very famous. And all of these mental games reveal to me the fragility of my faith that I am the beloved one on whom God's favor rests. 
I am so afraid of being disliked, blamed, put aside, passed over, ignored. I'm constantly developing strategies to defend myself and thereby assure myself of the love that I think I need and deserve. And in so doing, I move far away from my father's home and I choose to dwell in the distant country. And I want to say is that at the end of the day, hear this, that we need to find our security in God, not in people. People, all of us, are fragile human beings. At best, we talk about reaching out the hand to help bring someone home. We're wounded healers at best. We carry woundedness in us and inconsistency in us. People, we cannot build our, our identity around people's opinions, even people that we love deeply, ultimately. I'm not saying it doesn't matter, disregard it. What I'm saying is what happens if there's rejection there? What happens if that, it's, it's not showing up? What happens if it's a betrayal? What happens if, you know, you can go down the list. Does that mean I am not who I am anymore? What does that do to us? What do, I, what do we do when other people who are wanting, we want the same thing they want, they get it. Can I bless that? Or is there a part of me that is angry that they got it and I wanted it and didn't get it? See, this has to do with being in the far country. These are the things that God wants to keep. He wants to get at those things and bring them back into alignment. That's what we talk about living under the cross. It's about living in the place where we really find ourselves as one loved of God in Father's home. Last thing I'll say. We can be prodigal in a far country and never even leave home. So I'm switching the analogy now. What I'm saying is this. That happens every... Look. It was a nuance to me, and this is why I'm putting it out, is I think a lot of times we can, it happens when we, we can become discontented in the good place. So technically, and we're going to see it, it's going to show up in the older brother later on. But a lot of times, we're there, we're doing our duty, we're, we're not going anywhere. I haven't checked out of this thing, but we did check out. We did. Are you listening to me? Yeah, I'm listening. Well, what do you think? I don't know, whatever. <laughs> Doesn't matter. I'm, yeah, absolutely, sure. No, what do you think? What do you, what's your pick? Uh, whatever you want. I, I mean, uh, don't you care? Not really. But I'm here. Yeah, but got any passion? one thing to take off to the far country is another thing to take off when we stay home. We're there, but we're gone. I'm, he- I'm listening to you, but I don't hear you. I, what, Jesus, yeah, we, when we serve the Lord, he said, don't give me the leftovers. I don't even want the money if I don't get your heart. Keep it. What are you saying? It's one example. Don't be saying He's going to hit this. He's going to drive it home. He's going to dig in. He's going to take this story where they weren't expecting it to go. He's going to say, it's not just about doing your duty, my friends. It's about your heart. Jesus wanted to show us what God was like. He told the stories.